Whether it's a mystery novel or an espionage novel, it's the sum of its parts. everyone and welcome to season four, episode 10 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies most of the time. I'm your host, espionage author and occasional mystery author, P.A. Duncan. Because we're getting close to the launch of my first mystery novel, Supreme Madness of the Carnival Season, I'm going to pay attention to that book today. But if you came here for some spy talking and are a little disappointed, why not head over to my blog for my latest entry, The Ethics of Espionage? You can find that at www unexpectedpaths.com unexpected paths with no space between the words so supreme madness of the carnival season the tagline is there's a secret behind the parlor wall and here's a synopsis hunter russell and marilyn shook live a life of privilege He's from an old, rich, southern family. She's fought her way out of poverty and made a fortune as a best-selling romance author. After ten years of marriage, they buy the perfect house for their perfect life in the perfect Shenandoah Valley town of Ewington, Virginia. But that perfect house hides a grisly, decades-old mystery, one that Marilyn is determined to solve, even if someone else will do anything to keep that secret hidden. The more Marilyn learns, the more she realizes Ewington is far from perfect. Moreover, she's confronted with the reality she's denied far too long. Her own life is nowhere near as idyllic as she's pretended. So let's talk about this book's major plot points. Supreme Madness starts out in 2014 with Marilyn Shuck, a.k.a. Marilyn Hendricks, which is her pseudonym, her pen name, and her husband, Hunter Russell, as they're remodeling a room in an historic 1940s mansion they recently bought in Newington. But back in 1944, that house was only half finished because so many construction workers had been drafted for World War II. That makes it, however, the perfect hiding place for an unwed teenage mother's dead child, which Marilyn and Hunter find in 2014 during the demolition for the remodel. Marilyn is determined to solve the mystery 
of who put the baby in the wall of her house, and in the process, she is confronted with her own secret. In the 2014 portions, Marilyn is the protagonist, and that puts this novel in the amateur sleuth subgenre of mystery. There's a secondary protagonist who starts out actually as a secondary antagonist. The antagonist in both the 1944 and the 2014 timelines is the same person, 70 years apart. The protagonist in 1944, however, to me is a black maid who works for the antagonist's father and who is working hard to save enough money to go to nursing school. There are themes, unfortunately, of white privilege and social justice in both timelines, and racism is a motif that features also in both timelines as well. I didn't start to write a book about race, but since I was writing a book about a small southern town, particularly in 1944, I couldn't ignore how race shaped all the characters. The setting of the novel is the same small town in two different timelines, the World War II home front and a 2024 bustling tourist community that's modern and inclusive, which doesn't sit well with someone who's determined to maintain what she considers traditional values. The town of Ewington, the setting, doesn't exist except in this novel though I've taken physical features and the depiction of life in a small town from three places where I've lived significant portions of my life. Culpeper, Virginia, where I was born. Warrington, Virginia, where I grew up from about 12 years old to adulthood. And Stanton, Virginia, where I moved after I retired from the federal government. This small town setting of Ewington is almost a character itself, and if you've lived in a small town, you'll understand that. For example, in a small town, you know that everybody knows your business, and that if you have a secret you want to hide, you have to work really hard at keeping that secret out of people's notice, because someone, some nosy busybody, will find it out. Not that I'm speaking from experience, of course. I mean, I'm pretty good at hiding secrets. Maybe. But I hope in this novel, you'll see both the benefits of small town living, which is not a lot of traffic and not a lot of hustle and bustle, and that you'll also see the detractions, even the menace of a small town. Even though this is a mystery and my first mystery novel, I can't really escape my writing style. Like in my espionage novels, I have multiple point of view characters, protagonists and antagonists, a complicated and seemingly improbable plot, and I love twists. So the reveal of the mother of the dead baby hidden inside the wall of a half-finished house is my significant plot twist.
as I've said before, I've had to be way more of a plotter for this novel than I usually am. When I'm writing an espionage novel, I have a general idea of what I want to do because it's usually based on some event in history. And then I go with the flow. I write whatever comes to me on a particular day. And this is why we have editors. I hope the result for Supreme Madness of the Carnival season is an interesting story with relatable characters, some of them at least, and a satisfying twist. And now it's commercial time. You have eight days left to pre-order the ebook of Supreme Madness of the Carnival Season at its special pre-order price of $1.99. It launches on March 18th, and closer to that date, I'm probably going to have a little contest to give away a signed hardcover edition. I'll have more details about that next week. I need to flesh them out a little more. But in the meantime, I'll put the pre-order link in the description for this episode. And don't forget this month's featured book on sale, the ebook of The Better Spy, my novel and stories about Mai Fisher's recovery from a mission that almost killed her. That ebook is on sale for 99 cents, but next week, Monday through Friday, March 13th through the 17th, the ebook will be free. Yes, you heard that correctly. It will be free for five days. Just a wee St. Paddy's Day gift for you. The link for the sale and for next week's freebie will be in the description for this episode as well. And commercial over. So we're up to part six of Supreme Madness of the Carnival Season and in the 1944 timeline. Part six is titled Little Slices of Death. Again, another line from the story that inspired it somewhat, The Cask of Amontillado. By the way, let me digress here for just a moment to show just how different education is today and in some ways not for the best. I was at my doctor's office a couple of days ago for a regular checkup. And the nurse was taking my vitals, and she and the doctor are both familiar with my writing. They even have a couple of my books. And so the nurse was asking about my latest book, and I told her about Supreme Madness and that it was based on or inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Cask of Amontillado. And she just got this utterly blank look on her face and said, I've never heard of that. And I said, you, you never read Edgar Allan Poe in high school? And she said, no. Well, frankly, I think that's a shame because Edgar Allan Poe has more to teach us about the construct of a short story, a novel, a novelette, 
poetry than a whole bunch of English professors combined. I read a lot of Poe in high school. The Telltale Heart was a required reading in my, I believe, 10th grade English class, but apparently not anymore. So I think that's very sad among all the other book bannings and so forth that the curricula have been changed to take out classics. I know it's because younger people find them boring, but not if they're taught properly. So anyway, after that little editorial diversion, let's get back to reading some from Supreme Madness of the Carnival Season, Part 6, Little Slices of Death. Albertha Daniels had more than one reason to dread going to the Gates' house on Saturday. One was facing Miss Sarah, who had cried her eyes out most of the way back from Charlottesville. More than once, she'd pulled over to the side of the road to sob. The other discomfort was Albertha's secret, what she knew about Joe Lee. Miss Cecilia had sworn her to secrecy but Albertha didn't know if she'd be able to hold her tongue if Miss Sarah started on about how wonderful Joe Lee was. Albertha had almost called to say she was sick, but even with Miss Sarah's extra money, Albertha still needed her full salary. So she came to work. She dawdled over her downstairs chores until she had no choice but to start upstairs. Even then, she started at the opposite end of the house from Miss Sarah's room and left that for last. When she couldn't avoid it any more, she tapped on the door to Sarah's room. Albertha heard a muffled, Go away! She almost obeyed Miss Sarah. Sorry, Miss Sarah, you know Miss Miriam says I have to clean the whole house. The door opened to show her a red-eyed and weepy Sarah Gates. Where's my mama? Sarah asked her. Oh, gone to her club meeting, Miss Sarah. Get in here. Albertha entered with her cleaning supplies and the Hoover and headed for the bathroom. Albertha, wait, Sarah said. I need to ask you something. Well, she's being polite this morning, Albertha thought, and that made her suspicious. Yes, Miss Sarah? You said your aunt did the same things as that white nurse? Well, yes, ma'am, she can, but then she can do it. But I don't think I should pay her the same as the white nurse. Miss Sarah, if the white nurse wouldn't do it, my aunt won't either. It's too dangerous for you and for my aunt. Sarah groaned in frustration. What am I supposed to do? Like that nurse said. Talk to Mr. Gates and see if he'll take you to a doctor. Well, that's crazy. I can't do that, Sarah said. Tell your father Joe Lee forced you. No, I would never tell a lie about Joe. He loves me. No, I won't tell my father or my mother. She'd send me away somewhere, and I have to be here when Joe comes home. Albertha chewed her lower lip to keep from speaking. Are there, are there other ways to get rid of it? Sarah asked. Miss Sarah, I don't know anything about that sort of thing. Now, I need to clean. Ask your aunt. 
Oh, no, ma'am. If my mother heard me asking such a thing, she'd think I'm. What if I stopped eating? Would that starve it or something? Maybe, Miss Sarah. I do know a woman needs to eat right when she's in the family way. Sarah smiled at her. That's it. I'll stop eating. It'll go away, and I don't have to pay you any more money. You can't stop altogether, Miss Sarah, or else you'll starve to death. The girl gave a pouting frown. Well, I'll cut way back on what I eat. I could tell Mama I'm on a diet. She'd approve of that. Do what you want, Miss Sarah. Now, I have to start cleaning. So, if I do that, what happens? Does the thing die or something and my body absorbs it? Alberta thought of the cows on the farm who had stillborn calves. They got born. I don't think so, Miss Sarah. I think your body will get rid of it, kind of like having the baby, only it's dead. Sarah sat on the edge of her bed and worried a fingernail. What would I do with it? She smiled, rose, and came to take Alberta by her up. Take two. She smiled, rose, and came to take Alberta by her arms. You can get rid of it for me. Oh, Lord, Jesus, no, ma'am. I'm not going to be caught throwing away a white baby. Black folks are lynched for things less than that. Alberta backed away from the girl's grasp. Sarah crossed her arms. If you don't, I won't pay you a dime of that money. And I'll have a talk with your mother when she comes home. I'm going to go clean now. Sarah put herself between Alberta and the bathroom, arms still folded beneath her breasts. Well, she best not do that in front of her mama, Alberta thought, because all she's doing is showing that bump in her belly. When Joe comes home for... Liberty or R&R or whatever they call it, Sarah said. I'm going to tell him what you did, asking me for money. You know how the Lees feel about you black folk. Joe will make you pay. Alberta could tell the girl the truth of the matter, but no. Alberta wanted it to take her by surprise in public, where she'd have to behave herself. The preachers in all of Ewington's churches had taken up the habit of reading the names of local boys killed and wounded. Let Sarah hear it in church tomorrow, where she'd have to control her reaction in front of her parents and their highfalutin friends. Why, the knowledge alone might make the girl miscarry in front of everyone. I'm going to clean your bathroom now, Alberta said, stepping around here. When I'm done, I'll change your sheets. To her back, Sarah Gates said, Joe knows your mama and daddy. He knows where you live. I'm sure he'll think of something. Go on, get to work, girl. The only thing Sarah liked about church was Sunday school, where most times the boys and girls got the same lesson taught by the minister and his wife. During the social time before the lesson started, it was fun to flirt a little with the boys, all perfectly acceptable since the reverend's wife was present and kept a hawk's eye on things. The boys always asked Sarah to go for a milkshake after church, not at the drugstore, of course, because that would be closed. The church youth group had a milkshake machine in part of the reception hall 
turned into a soda shop for the afternoon. Good, clean fun, the Reverend had said. And Sarah had enjoyed that until Joe. Now she felt she would be cheating on him to pay attention to another boy, and such innocent fun was childish in her eyes. However, she didn't mind the boys asking. When they chatted with her, told her how pretty she looked, she could forget for a while exactly what kind of trouble she'd gotten herself into. And it was fun to watch her silly girlfriends blushing and giggling over the boys' attention. She wanted to tell them, Stop being coy. If you tell a boy you want to be with him, everything is much easier, like she had with Joe. She also liked singing hymns during the service, and the reverend's wife had once told Sarah she sang with such fervor Jesus must truly be in her. Sarah had smiled. Jesus hadn't been in her at all, but Joe Lee had. The sermons were boring. They lasted too long, and the preacher was such a hypocrite. Sarah had seen the looks he'd given the girls, and sometimes a hand placed on a shoulder stayed too long or squeezed too hard or moved where it shouldn't. Because Daddy was practically the richest man in town, his family had an image to maintain. She couldn't skip the service, and heaven forbid she'd nod off, though she and her Amelia Purdy friends would sneak glances at each other and hide their smiles behind white-gloved hands. It was hard not to laugh when the Reverend got red-faced and sweaty as he railed about sin. Sarah stopped listening to the man and looked around the sanctuary until she found the stained-glass windows her father had donated the money for. Each had a small plaque beneath it which read, Donated by the Stanford Gates family. Someday, she and Joe would donate, and the church would place other plaques acknowledging the generosity of the Joe Lee family. Though her father and mother would consider Joe coarse by their standards, Sarah knew she could refine him into a gentleman. She would be Mrs. Joe Lee, Sarah Lee. This time, she had to fake a little cough to keep from laughing. Sarah Lee like those cakes her mother liked. Well, maybe she could use her middle name, Mabel Lee. Yes, that sounded like a wife's name. She'd have to start practicing signing her name that way, so she'd be ready for the day when she'd become that person, Mabel Lee, Mrs. Joe Lee. As his wife, she and Joe could do those things they'd done in her bedroom every day, any time they wanted, all day if they desired. She had no qualms thinking those thoughts in church as if the randy old men in the congregation didn't. She had knowledge and experience her friends didn't, and she relished that feeling. And now, the preacher said, his shift in tone bringing Sarah out of her reverie, here are the families we need to keep in our prayers. You have read by now about the Allied invasion of Europe this past June 6th. God has seen fit to take some of Ewington's finest to his heavenly home. These brave young men now sit at Christ's side because they have fought and died for God and country. 
First, we will acknowledge and pray for the wounded. He intoned a list of names, none of which Sarah recognized. As he went on, a couple of her friend's older brother's names came up, and she heard soft crying nearby. When Joe's name wasn't among the wounded, she said her own silent prayer. The reverend paused, took out his handkerchief, and wiped his eyes. Sarah nearly rolled hers. Get over with it, she thought. There are milkshakes to be had. Here are the ones, the reverend said, who have paid the ultimate price and now serve in heaven. They have gone before us and now guard us from heaven. Let our sorrow be brief, for they are with God. Sergeant Amos Boyle, Jr. Corporal Thomas N. Carlton. Captain Nathaniel J. Barrington, III. Sarah and many others gasped on hearing Nate Barrington's name. Brother of her friend Alice Barrington, he'd stolen a kiss one Christmas from Sarah when he was home from college. Sarah had noticed Alice wasn't at Sunday school today. Well, this was awful. Alice worshipped her older brother. Sarah felt her mother pat her arm. How sad, her mother whispered to her. It's a shame the Barringtons let him volunteer. In the background, the reverend had mentioned more names, and the congregation grew still and quiet. The preacher brought out his handkerchief once more and wiped his face. His next words seemed forced from his throat. I have saved one name for last, because this is doubly sad. This young man got married right before he left for boot camp, and now he will only get to see his bride and their firstborn from heaven. Please pray for Mr. Randolph Matheson, whose daughter Olivia is the boy's wife, and for Mr. and Mrs. Charles Lee, for the loss of their firstborn son, Joe Charles Lee. May they take comfort from the fact he gave his life for our freedom. Let us pray. Sarah felt as if the walls of the church crushed her. She struggled to breathe. Joe married? No. Stupid preacher got it wrong. Joe dead? No. Joe was not dead. He was coming back to her. Stupid old preacher never got anything right. Her vision narrowed until everything went black. She felt her father grasping her, keeping her from sliding to the floor. What is it, Sarah? What's wrong? he asked. A few of her senses returned, enough she knew better than to mention Joe Lee. Alice's brother, Nate, I, I can't believe he's, he's... What is wrong with her? Sarah heard her mother's whisper. Oh, she's taken the news about Nate Barrington hard. Her father murmured as he hugged Sarah and rubbed her shoulder. Oh, of course, she's known him since she was a child. Sarah, do you want my smelling salts? Sarah knew if her mother shoved that vile stuff beneath her nose, she'd vomit here and now. No, uh, Mama, I'm fine now. It was a shock. Well, take some deep breaths and remember where you are, her mother said. 
Her father kept one arm around her and patted her hand where it clutched the seat of the pew. The closing hymn started, but she couldn't stand and sing. Joe had married Olivia Matheson the day he left for boot camp? That was impossible. That was the day he finished the fence, and he'd spent the afternoon until early evening in her room fucking her. He'd redressed and gone back outside before her mother came home, and his father was waiting for him to drive him to Fort Hill for processing. He couldn't have gotten married. And to Olivia Matheson? No one in Amelia Purdy's liked her. She was a Yankee snob and couldn't be bothered to make friends with anyone. She talked about silly things like how the coloreds were equal and how she was going to college. Joe would never be interested in her. The preacher got it wrong, all wrong. But Olivia had missed a lot of school at the end of last term. Sarah hadn't given that much notice except to think good riddance. Hadn't the preacher said something about a firstborn? The hymn ended and the reverend mentioned that in light of such bad news, the teen social would be canceled, that they could join the adults for cake and punch. People began to file from the pews, murmuring about the wounded and the dead. Sarah didn't remember following her mother and father to the church basement for refreshment, and she blinked when she realized where she was. The men had clustered off to one side to talk about the war or that it had finally rained, their cigarette smoke making that end of the room hazy. The women grouped in knots of two and three, exchanging gossip. Normally, Sarah would have gotten as far away from her mother as possible, but today she stayed close to her as Miriam Gates went from group to group to listen or contribute to the rumor mill. Someone shoved a cup of punch into Sarah's hand, but she didn't drink. Sarah is very upset about Nate Barrington, her mother was saying. She and Alice are such good friends, and she's known Nate all her life. I'll have to call on Mrs. Barrington in a day or so. She must be prostrate with grief. I'm so glad I have a daughter, and I won't lose a child to this war. And what about that surprise wedding in the Lee family? Someone said. You know, the Mathesons go to that Catholic church up the hill. Apparently the priest, or whatever he's called, got summoned to the Matheson house for a real quick wedding. You know what that means. Be careful what you say in front of my daughter, Miriam said. The plot thickens as they say. At least, I hope so. Over the weekend, one of those harrowing atrocities of war occurred in Ukraine. Now, I'm not going to suggest that you go watch the video that's all over the place, because if it depicts exactly what happened, it is sickening. Allegedly, a Russian unit captured a Ukrainian soldier disarmed him, so he was unarmed, taunted him, and decided to execute him. This is so wrong and so illegal on so many levels, including a fact that a Russian soldier filmed it. The dead soldier's name is Timofey Mikolaevich Shadura. 
He stays silent during the taunting, and when he realizes what's about to happen, his last words shouted at his killers are, Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine, and then he's killed. My condolences to his family. I hope they can take some comfort from his defiance in the face of death. And now I think you can see exactly what the Ukrainians are fighting for. I'm looking forward to a quiet but a bit cooler weekend here in the Shenandoah Valley. But don't worry, I'll bundle up if I go outside to keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding is a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of The Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. Oh, and here in the U.S., don't forget to spring forward on your clocks this weekend. And as always, Slava Ukraini. Rest in peace, Timofi Shadura.